Good evening, everyone. Words matter. And when we get to sing with one another and sing spiritual songs over one another, what a beautiful gift. Words matter. Words matter. And I read some words on the page this week. Actually, it wasn't a page. It was an online article, but you know, same difference. Uh, And I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, there was an astronomer by the name of Sir John Herschel who discovered life on the moon. Did you guys hear about this? Okay. So he apparently used a magnification tool called a hydro-oxygen magnifier. Okay. And it was able to see plants and animal life in great detail. In fact, there's an expertly rendered image that is this. Okay. Expertly rendered, right? This is impressive stuff. Um, I don't know if you've seen this image or any of the others like it. Um, In fact, it was unlike anything that I'd ever experienced or anyone else in 1835 uh, when the New York Sun began publishing a series of articles um, with incredibly believable faux scientific detail that were um, that came with these images so that you knew it was real. And, uh, and it was all falsely attributed to a very real astronomer named Sir John Herschel. Now, the, the articles um, sounded really convincing like this. Of animals, he classified nine species of mammalia, five of ovipara. Among the former is a small kind of reindeer, the elk, the moose, the horned bear, the biped beaver, the horned bear, that would be scary. The last resembled the beaver of the earth in every other respect than its destitution of a tail. You're using words like destitution, you know that it's real, right? And it's invariable habit of walking upon only two feet. It carries its young in its arms like a human being and moves with an easy gliding motion. I mean, imagine you're reading this, 1835, New York Sun, and there, okay, there's, there's images. And really, this is about what you get in any newspaper in 1835, no matter what it's of. Um, and then they're citing a well-respected astronomer, so also expertise. And then it's from a journalistic endeavor, so there's trust there as well. So in other words, you, can, you read this, and it sounds unbelievable, but at the same time, there's all the reasons to think that it's authoritative, Right? I mean, look at all the detail there. You have your like stereotypical demon people there. It should be really scary if that was on the moon. Um, you, uh, you got those stork kind of creations over there and other images. Um, oh, there's those the biped beavers holding their kids. I, I didn't even see that before. It's pretty cool. And one of the other images, uh, it looks like the ancestors of my dog, Duffy, um, was on the planet. It looks like a llama deer. Um, pretty impressive stuff. Now, It would be really magnificent if all this were true, but in fact, all of this was a myth that was rooted in um, in, in it being a hoax. It was a myth that was created to exist as a hoax. Now, when we're talking about myth, which is a word we're going to talk about a lot tonight, myth is simply a different word for the word story. You could just boil it down to the word story. Now, myths can exist as hoaxes. Now, I would imagine we know what a hoax is. A hoax is something to manipulate others for selfish or self-interested reasons. So you are manipulating manipulating, you are telling a lie that is not just a fun lie, but is meant to deceive and manipulate for a purpose that benefits those who are telling the story. So if you are the storyteller, you know it's not true, but you cleverly devise or perpetuate a lie for whatever benefits you as the storyteller. 
such as the New York Sun article. In fact, they continued to release a series of articles throughout the span of the summer in 1835. And the reason was so that they could drive new subscribers. And so when you hear that one newspaper is giving you all the information about, about plant life and animal life on the moon, you're probably signing up for that subscription, right? And so everyone begins to do this. Uh, so they're pu- until in August, past summer now, they publish a retraction of the entire thing, explaining that it was all a hoax, it was all a joke. And they put it in the back of the newspaper. Probably didn't go viral. And could you imagine like for generations, you might like pass that down. Yeah, and then, you know, Sir John Herschel discovered the beaver on the moon. It was crazy. And then a kid's like, grandma, it's like, it's 1910. Like, why are we still talking about biped beavers? This is obviously all fake. But you could imagine how this stuff could be ingrained, this hoax. And so... Myths can exist as hoaxes, but they can also exist as fables. Now, I'd imagine you probably have heard the word fable before. A fable is something that is a story, a myth that is created to help the hero understand some underlying truth, regardless of if the facts are actually true. So, for example, the most famous fables um, that use that word are, come from Aesop, a, uh, a storyteller and a philosopher um, from ancient Greece. And there's Aesop's fables, right? One of the most famous is the story of the tortoise and the hare. Now, nobody hears the story of the tortoise and the hare and goes, I wonder if it's true. I wonder how it actually played out, right? Like, you know that it's a story. You know, it's a fable. You know, it's a myth, but that's okay because it's telling a something that is true, a truth, not a series of facts. And so you believe that and you understand what that is. You understand it's just a myth that's meant to convey a story, a truth. In fact, it's an important truth, right? That arrogance uh, and pridefulness ends up taking you into places of laziness and lethargy. And all the while the tortoise symbolizes this humble, consistent, persistent creature who ends up winning the race. So like that is a truth, but you're not wondering what, where that actually occurred. You're not thinking that it could have actually happened. Now, Aristotle explained that myths are ultimately helpful when they make apprehension possible for the masses for their ethical and religious instruction. In other words, fables are helpful. These kinds of myths are helpful because it makes it easier to understand a truth that you're trying to convey. Fair? Now, For as enlightened as we think our culture is, we are also surrounded by myths. Fair? Not all myths are bad. In fact, some are quite fun. The the fable myths, we we love. We call them entertainment, right? Uh, The entire Marvel Cinematic Universe is made up of a sequence of myths, of fables that are trying to convey a story and hopefully some, uh, some common good truth that most humans can agree on to some extent or another, right? You're not wondering as you were in the theaters over the course of this weekend, man, I wonder what's actually happening with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, like what are they doing up there? You know that it's a fable. You know that it's mythical. Sorry, sorry. I know I ruined things like that. Now for the light, so, so that's all true, right? That we understand that we are surrounded by myths in that way, but we're also surrounded by hoaxes. 
And so I, uh, maybe some of you heard the story. I imagine most of you had that uh, a few weeks ago, a new song was released by Drake in the weekend um, and it broke the internet. Uh, and, like had millions of views instantly and it was super popular uh, just for within 24 hours it to be announced that actually Drake and the weekend did not partner up to release a new song. In fact, an AI bot created a song and released it and had millions of views. Are you scared yet? Uh, like, What can we trust in a world of deceptions? Now, oftentimes other humans will use our desires to believe in something incredible, whether it's a, a new song that you're jazzed about listening to or, or, or believing that there is actually animal life on the moon or whatever it is, because you're like, I want to believe it's true. And so they peer into that to manipulate our minds and our hearts, our desires and our wallets, Right? Now, we live in a world that is also has democratized so much of uh, social media, right? All of our voices have the ability to be heard by people all over the world immediately. Now, there's a lot of benefit to that, but the head of the London School of Finance, Namat Shafiq, explained this in an article that I read, that there are downsides as well. Information that is difficult to verify can be overwhelming. Algorithms create echo chambers of like-minded people who never see another side. Fake news distorts reality. Anonymity gives power to those who may abuse it in a world of more revenue for more clicks, rewards the shrillest voice, and promotes the most extreme views. 2023, y'all. So, so we begin to doubt everything, everyone. Everything has to be suspect, right? Because none of us wake up in the morning and want to be manipulated and want to buy into a, something that is untruthful, a hoax. So we grow especially skeptical of most voices, but especially those who claim any version of expertise. Simply saying that you are trustworthy is all the cause for people's like red flags to go up going, oh, now I know what you're like. And so now let's talk about the Bible a collection of ancient writings that many have manipulated to do great harm throughout the centuries. And yet they are writings that also proclaim the most wondrous and fantastic realities beyond imagination. And they claim to not be a standard, but the standard of what is true and truth. That doesn't really gel with our cultural moment, right? So we can easily understand why there's a lot of skepticism surrounding the scriptures and especially around the miraculous wonders that you discover and that it claims to be factual. And even for those of us in this room who follow Jesus, if we are honest, we can sometimes feel like the Bible can be an obstacle to genuine and authentic faith rather than a means of God's grace for us to discover him more. And so it's fair to wonder, if the scriptures are nothing more than a hoax to control the masses through belief or a well-crafted fable to instruct the masses, but not to be truly believed in. And so what are we supposed to do with this? Is it a mythology of hoaxes, fables? Is it trustworthy? Should it actually affect our lives? And so tonight, that's what we're going to explore as we continue on in uh, the letter of 2 Peter or 2 Peter, if you want to open your Bibles. Um, if you happen to have one of the beautiful blues on page 1120, we always have Bibles on the back. They're always willing, um, always there for you to 
use when we're here and just take with you as you go. Now, so far, we've begun to discover Peter's desire to continue to draw these beloved brothers and sisters that he is writing this letter to, to a place of discovery of God's grace multiplied. Now, last week, we explored Peter's desire to stir up these followers of Jesus to stay awake on the path, to be consistently reminded of the gospel so that they will grow on their journey with Jesus. Now, this is important as we're going to get to in the next few weeks because there are false teachers who had been infiltrating into the midst of these churches who were causing confusion, dissension, and frustration. And in fact, they were accusing the apostles, including Peter, of teaching myths that were either hoaxes meant to manipulate or fables to educate. But either way, they were not rooted in fact. They were indeed rooted in fiction. And so we continue in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. And here's how Peter starts. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So let's start there. So Peter and the rest of the apostles are the we that's being talked about here. And, it's, and he, he describes that they have been making known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a more accurate translation would negate the word and in there. And so it would be more akin to something like the powerful coming or the powerful arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is what this is writing about, what Peter is talking about here is Jesus's powerful presence drawing near to humanity again. It's the culmination of how Jesus described the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is according to Jesus, the good news of Jesus is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent to return home because the kingdom of heaven, God's own presence, his home is coming towards us. So turn back to him because he is turning back to you. Now this day that is being referred to here, this moment of arrival is known in the Old Testament of the scriptures as the day of the Lord. It's a moment in the future where God's justice will reign in fullness by the very presence of Jesus. When all evil is undone, all the broken things of this world are made untrue, all the neglect and the hurt and the abuses, and all that is left is light, life, and freedom. Because the King Jesus has come and his light, life, and freedom will forever expand beyond the realms of the cosmos. Now, it's fair to say that that moment has not happened yet, yeah? Like we, we look around in our world and we're like, oh yeah, justice doesn't reign here all the time. Oh yeah, 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 there's a lot of brokenness around us. There's a lot of brokenness right in here. So it's fair to say that nothing in this has happened that is like this yet. But here's the deal. At this point, Peter has been doing this ministry thing apart from Jesus for about 30 years, encouraging people with the same gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Encouraging people to turn back to God because his kingdom, his presence is drawing near and will be here in fullness one day soon. Now, the early church fully expected Jesus' second coming to happen any day. They're like, is it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? I don't care what day. Let's make it happen. It's going to be epic. But again, it's been 30 years at this point. 30 years. And there's no sign that Jesus is coming anytime soon. So it makes sense that people 
are starting to come up with other interpretations of these prophecies, of these events. Like maybe at first you're thinking, okay, he's coming this week. Yeah, like, did you just hear what happened at, and at Pentecost? And this Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and then they went out and they preached and people were getting baptized left and right and it was beautiful and perfect. That must mean he's coming back soon. And months go by and years go by and then you're thinking, maybe we heard it wrong. Maybe it happened, it's gonna happen a different way. Maybe he's not coming. Maybe, maybe it was a myth. Maybe it was a hoax. Maybe it was a fable. Maybe it's just a cleverly devised myth, as Peter writes here. Now, again, myths can be powerful tools for manipulation by some or a strong teaching tool for others. The question is, is the news of Jesus returning one of them? See, these false teachers came in declaring that the message of Jesus is exactly that cleverly devised myths that were spreading like wildfire. And so they are coming in and they're asking questions and making accusations saying it is a cleverly devised myth. Maybe it's a hoax. Maybe it's a fable. Whatever it is, it's not going to happen. And now the reality is in our world, whether it's talking about Jesus' return, his resurrection, his death, his life, or even his birth, everything about it, people have a number of thoughts on it. Fair? And so we look at each of these facets and we have to ask, because we weren't there, can any of us really know? You know? You weren't there in the past, neither was I. You didn't see Jesus return, neither did I. So how can we really know any of this is factual? We don't have a sample of the water that was turned into wine. We don't have a verified medical report of a man who was suffering from leprosy uh, who was ended up being healed by Jesus and then all of a sudden he just walked away and went into worship. We don't have video evidence of Jesus living, leaving an empty tomb after being dead for three days. And we don't, it hasn't happened yet that Jesus has come back in his fullness to execute his justice on a broken and fallen world. So how do we really know? Now, apparently Peter was running into that exact same argument within the immediate years after Jesus left the earth the first time. And so maybe a better question that we should be asking is, how did Peter really know? Fair? And what he explains in this passage is because I experienced the risen, arrived Jesus. I was there. I witnessed his majesty. He goes on, verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. See, this is a retelling of a story that's recorded in each of the gospel accounts in the uh, the book of, and the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 17, verses 1. Okay, here's, how I, here's what Matthew records. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, same Peter, and James, and James's brother, John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
transfigured, another word for transformed or uh, revealed. His full glory was being revealed. And before then, all they, all of these disciples ever witnessed was Jesus veiled like a human, like one of them. But now whatever this is, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Uh, I've never seen white as light clothes. So that sounds pretty crazy. And behold, they're appearing to them, Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses the uh, the most important of the uh, the voices from the Torah, the earliest books of the Old Testament, and Elijah, one of the most prominent uh, prominent prophets of the Old Testament as well. So they are both walking in front of him, and Peter said to Jesus, "Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." And he was still speaking when, and I love this, like there was an interruption. Um, Peter likes to do a lot of talking and then um, the father interrupts and he, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on the floor on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, the only one that was left was Jesus. Y'all want to nerd out with me just for a minute on the Bible here. Because this story is filled with so many really cool hyperlinks. Over a thousand years before this, there was the book of Psalms that was collected together. uh, And there's a specific prophecy in Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is all about a coming king that would be later known as the Messiah, the anointed one. And And here is what it says about him. Verse six, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is God the Father talking and that there would be a king who's gonna be set on this holy hill. But let's find out what kind of king, who is this king? What's he gonna be like? And I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your, the earth your possession. Are you seeing some similar language here? I told you these hyperlinks are so cool. So the, this king who's going to, become, going to be coming is unlike any king in the history of humanity. He isn't like King David. He isn't like King Hezekiah. He's not like any of those kings. He is an altogether different king. And we know that because God says, this is my beloved son. That's how you're going to know who the real one is. Now, hundreds of years later, another prophet named Isaiah would pin a song that we refer to affectionately as the servant song. It's known as Isaiah 42 in the scriptures. And in it, there is a beautiful, beautiful telling about who this suffering servant would be. That there would come a suffering servant who would bear the transgressions of humanity on himself. That he would be pierced, that he would die. And it starts this way though, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. Are you seeing this language? This is my beloved, my begotten son with whom I am well pleased. You see what, what 
God the Father was doing at the moment that Jesus is on this mountain and his three buddies are hanging out with him. He is saying, my son, Jesus is the powerful coming Messiah King. And he is the humble suffering servant. He is both. Now, for Peter, for James, for John, when they were on those mountains, when they heard from the heavens those words, their minds, because they all would have went to the basics, uh, through basic studies in Torah class, they would have known these. These hyperlinks would have been instantaneous in their minds. Those weren't just, wow, that sounds awesome. They would have been like, whoa, I know who, who God's talking about here. And so for Peter, this wasn't something that he just read about in a book. It's not something that he was just told by his parents growing up. It's not something that he learned in Sunday school. It's not something that he heard preached from a stage. When he is saying these things, he doesn't say, well, I know that these things are true because somebody else told me. He is saying that he knows these are true because he heard them with his ears. He heard God's voice proclaimed from the heavens. Now that's incredible. But Peter is refusing to give an inch to any understanding that this or any other story of Jesus is a fable. It's not a fable to Peter, according to what he's saying. Because what he is saying is this stuff really happened. And I'm not just saying it to tell a good story. I'm telling you because I heard it. I was there. I heard it. This isn't a story just to learn from. This is fact that I experienced. Now, here's the deal. You are free to believe that Peter is lying. That's an option. He is perpetuating a hoax. Or maybe he sincerely believes all of this, but he was just severely deluded. But the one door that Peter is not allowing to remain open is the idea that this is some type of fable myth. And so then Peter continues. Verse 19. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the darkness, in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What he is saying is I knew this stuff over 30 years ago when I heard the Father's voice proclaiming from the heavens. And that was incredible. But in this, what he's getting at is how much better do you and I have it now? We have the prophecies even more fully confirmed than when I stood on that mountain before Jesus went to the cross and died and was risen from the grave. You and I have a more full image of who Jesus is today than when, than when I walked with him. And so what Peter is saying is we need to pay attention in the midst of our darkened world, but also trust that the darkness will not last forever. A day is coming. Justice will reign. A new day will dawn and King Jesus will arrive in his powerful presence and justice will reign and pain will be dissolved and all the broken things will be undone and the morning star of Jesus will rise up in your heart and you will know why light and freedom like you've never known it before. For Peter, this isn't a fable. It's not just a good story. He is putting everything in this basket. See, to truly allow our hearts and our minds to be captivated, though, to truly believe any of this, there is something that we have to do to start. 
we have to know, as Peter just explained in verse 20 and in verse 21, that there is no prophecy that ever has come by man's own interpretation. Verse 20, let's go back to that and hit 21 as well. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What he is saying is none of the authors of the scriptures, none of them, Isaiah, Moses, none of them were created by them. In fact, no true prophecy or foretelling has ever come that there was a person who was smart enough or wise enough or spiritual enough to figure it out on their own terms. What he is saying is it has to come from God. So in other words, it is God who both provides the prophecy and who interprets the prophecy. So these false teachers who have been trying to interpret these prophecies on their own terms, they're clearly doing it wrong because they're not doing it with God. They're doing it apart from him. They are questioning foundational realities about the scriptures and about how to understand them. See, what Peter's claiming here is the fact that all of the scriptures, that they're not even written by humanity alone but by the Spirit of God through human authors. Now again, you're free to reject that. But that's what the Scriptures are saying. That's what Peter's explaining here. And once again, it's possible that Peter is making all this up with all of the other biblical authors. For sure. He could be spreading a hoax for control and power. Or maybe he and the others are simply delusional. So it makes sense why we might have these suspicions, especially in a world like ours, filled with misinformation and where, um, where abused authority has led all authority to be highly suspect in our minds. How can we possibly believe a collection of writings that are claiming ultimate authority, representing the very voice of God? See, the scriptures don't allow a very easy buffet approach to it. You take what you want and you leave what sounds really hard. What Jesus explained and what the authors of the scripture explained is it's all together and it stands with itself. And when we pick and choose, it only dilutes the entire concept. Now, that's hard for us to wrestle with. And that's why I think it's so important that we do, that we shouldn't just be quick to dismiss it as fantasy because it's been abused or because it just sounds too fantastic to believe. Nor should we simply believe pat answers that we were taught growing up with it either though. We need to wrestle. Now, personally, I really like the way that um, a pastor and professor, a guy named Vody Bauckham, explained his belief in trust in the scriptures. Uh, I found this super helpful. In fact, uh, I'll read over this quote, but you're going to want to hit up the YouTube um, teaching that uh, he had done at a, at a seminary years ago on this um, quote, and uh, he goes into great detail on it. But he explains it this way. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I know a lot of words, really clickable, right? Um, It's a great quote. Um, So look up the YouTube clip on it. So I'm not going to go into it in too big of detail, but I do want to hit on a few of the points in there. 
what he claims is what the scriptures claim. They're not a book. The Bible is not a book. Now, it might look like a book because of how we format it together, but it's not a book. The word Bible even comes from the Latin word uh, where we get the word library from. The Bible is a library. It's just all fits in one cover. It's a collection of 66 individual writings covering a vast amount of genres throughout a period of over 2,000 years of writing history filled with historically verifiable facts. And it was written by those who claimed to be eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses. And this is what Peter was doing, right? He was saying, I, didn't, I wasn't up there alone. Me, James, John, we were all there that night. So you don't have to take Peter's words for it. You could go ask the others. At this point, I believe John was the only one still left alive other than Peter because James had already died a martyr's death. Now, this is important though, but you might be like, but that's not a great, like when you're three best buddies, like that's not a great, per, like that's not a great way to understand what is true. They could easily collude together on a hoax. In fact, that makes a lot of sense going back to the moon creature hoax. Let's go ahead and put up that image one more time um, just for fun. Yeah, that. Okay. So yeah, that, like that hoax from the New York Sun from 1835. It wasn't perpetuated by one person. There wasn't one author who did all the typesetting by himself and came up with the concept art. There was a collusive effort towards this hoax. So isn't it possible that they came together, that John, that James, that Peter came together and they're like, here's what we're gonna tell the rest of the disciples. We're gonna tell them that the voice of God spoke from the heavens and said this thing. It's gonna be epic. Or that Jesus just told them what to say and then they went and did it. Now, is it possible that they did that? Absolutely. You can go ahead and ditch that screen. The only problem, the only problem is what this claims and how they held up throughout the history of these men's lives. See, at this point, James had likely already died. Peter would soon die following the, the, the sending out of this letter. John, well, John, he, he didn't die. He didn't die a martyr's death. They attempted to kill him. They tried to boil him in a vat of oil, um, but somehow he miraculously survived just to be tossed onto the island of Patmos where he was exiled until, the, until his death one day. So again, let's go back to the definition of a hoax though. A hoax is when you intentionally manipulate other people for your own gain and benefit. What possible benefit did James, did John or Peter have in this? This is why James died because he refused to recant his statement of faith that Jesus was who he heard from the father he was. This is why Peter was soon after, according to tradition, he was crucified, but he refused to be crucified the same way as his savior. So he was crucified upside down because he refused to recant of this same testimony. This is why John was deep fried and still didn't die and was still exiled because he refused to recant this statement. See, they weren't, they didn't have a benefit to the hoax. Could it be that they were all delusional? For sure. But there was no personal benefit. Now, why is that a problem? Because people have died throughout the centuries. We know this for their belief systems, right? Whether it's political or religious. Look from the Persian empire, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, through all the way to like now. 
people are willing to die for what they believe in. That's fair. But they don't die for what they absolutely incontrovertibly know to be false beliefs. If you would have threatened the lives of the journalists who came up with that fake moon story, you could safely assume that they would immediately retract the story, right? Like, no, that's all fake. No, like, don't, don't. I'm not dying for the existence of fake moon beavers. <laughs> but Peter did not simply believe that Jesus walked on water or that he revealed his glory on the mountain or that he died on the cross or that he rose from the grave because somebody else told him. He claimed to have seen it and heard it. He experienced too much. And so Peter and the others reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. But you see, none of this was based on their hopes or the desires or their dreams. Peter was not a believer in Jesus. He was a follower in Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew who he was. He had seen it take place. So if anything, the only lie he could tell was to say that he wasn't who he heard he was from God the Father himself. That would be the only lie that was allowable for him. And so with all of this, it makes sense though, why the scriptures can feel like a stumbling block for so many of us so often. They were written in vastly different cultural contexts to ours or separated by at least 2,000 years to the first eyewitnesses of the records. And so at some point, it does absolutely require us to choose to believe. But it's not meant to be uninformed, uh, Neverland-style belief. It is belief rooted in reality, but requires trust. You feel the difference there? See, when you... It requires a hard wrestle. And when you have done the hard wrestle, my hope is that if that's where you're at and you're like, I, I'm really questioning what's in here. There's some parts of it that are just so gnarly and confusing. They seem contradictory. I don't know what to do with it. And then I would say is fair, bring those questions to the table. Go and wrestle. Just don't throw it to the side. And because what I truly believe is that if you do that, you will do by the grace of God, what he did in my heart is that he helped me to understand that it is not just purporting truth. It is true, but it's also not just true. It is the words of life. That in the scriptures, it gives me audience to hear the voice of my father who desperately wants me to com communicate with him, to hear from him, to be attached to him, to experience his nearness. It's not so I could be smarter. It's not just so that I could be more right. It's not just so that I could be better. It's so that I could experience him. In the scriptures, we experience words that are both timely and timeless. And this doesn't mean that there aren't confusing parts or hard parts or contextual parts that are hard for us to appreciate or desire or want to be true or believe at all. But what it does mean is that the scriptures are meant to be experienced as God's own voice to you and me. And they're not meant to be an obstacle, get in the way of sincere relationship with them. It just means we have to get to work and we have to be bold enough to ask the hard questions. But it starts with you interacting with the scriptures. And so that'd be my encouragement to you. Start going after it. 
Come be a part of Bible study with us. Experiences we are unpacking and bring the tough stuff, bring the questions. We don't want those outside. We don't want you checking those at the door. And we're not gonna cast judgment in this community when you have those. We welcome those questions. Not because we're gonna give you a pat answer, but because we wanna go on a journey with you. Now, if you're, if you're curious about the scriptures and it seems daunting and you want a, an easy place to start, there's a really cool book I want to recommend. Uh, it's called God's Big Picture. Um, it's not a kid's book, although I know some really good kid's books that I would also recommend to you um, as well, but it's called God's Big Picture. And it tells the entire meta narrative of the scriptures and helps you understand how to study the scriptures, why the scriptures matter and how they all tell one cohesive story that leads us to Jesus. As well, I would highly recommend you to check out the videos and podcasts from The Bible Project. Uh, It's a nonprofit ministry who does incredible work to understand um, the original context of the scriptures. And I personally have found it to be one of the most influential and helpful voices in my walk with Jesus. And so I want to encourage you towards that as well. Now, I want to invite the band to come on up. And as they're on their way up, here's what I want to encourage you with there are going to be those who you will interact with. And maybe this is where you're at tonight. Struggling with, well, it still feels more like hoax. It just feels like good sayings and good phrases. It feels like either something to deceive or something to inform, but it just can't be true, right? And my hope for you is that you would just start wrestling that you wouldn't do it just by yourself, but that you would see that this is a safe community to do it with so that you would discover and uncover not just just what is truth, but what is true and not just what is true, but what is good. Because in this, in this we discover the voice of the one who is truly good. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good and kind and faithful. And I confess sometimes it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like you're good or kind or faithful. In the middle of a a dark and broken world, at times it can feel like you're distant. It can feel hard to know how to engage with you but yet you haven't given up on us. You desire to draw near to us and you desire for us to return back to you. And so Lord, I pray for all my my friends here, both those who are here tonight and they're my brothers and sisters in your family and those who have yet to discover your incredible love for them. I confess, Lord, that we are simply a room full of beggars, whether we realize it or not. We are beggars in search of food. And so, Lord, I pray that in your words of life, we would discover the sustenance, the nutrients, the desires, the hopes, the truths. Your voice speaking to us. Thank you for your grace that is your word. I pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts and our minds by it and with it. Not so that we'd just be smarter or more self-righteous, but so that we would know you. And so, Lord, we need you for this journey because apart from you, we can do nothing. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.